Let's turn together to the book of 1 Peter. We did our reading out of there, and we're going to go, go back to the book of 1 Peter. I was um, a little bit surprised, as well as pleased, that some of you have remembered uh, that times that I preach, which is typically fifth, fifth Sundays, I've been working my way through different passages in the Old Testament as we consider the law and the prophets and the writings. And uh, I do fully intend to return to that uh, the next time that I preach. But uh, this morning, I want to go to the book of, of First Peter um, and divert a little bit from that study in the Old Testament because of something that's just been on my heart a lot lately and um, something I want to discuss with you today. Um, maybe you've noticed in the pastoral word, even that I've been, that I've been writing, there has been um, a focus on the word itself. So I've been talking about Second, Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse number 16, that all scripture is inspired. And I've uh, just been considering uh, the word itself and what it does mean to us and what it ought to mean to us. And I've been thinking about things like scripture memory. And so my, my heart was just drawn to this passage in First Peter. And so I want us to consider that together today as we consider the word. I'd like to preach to you today, uh, let the word affect your affections. Let the word affect your affections. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to go down into chapter number 2. Let's read together First Peter 1, 22, down through chapter 2, verse number 3. We, we did read this passage together only a few weeks ago because we've been reading through First Peter. My attention has drawn back to it again and again, and so let's consider it together today. First Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm convinced that these verses point our attention to the reality that we should allow the word to affect our affections, and particularly in two specific areas that Peter um, points us to. One, we should love one another because of the word. We should love one another because of the word. And secondly, we should long for the word because of its power. So those will be our two main points today. Love one another because of the word. Long for the word because of its power. Right? We all have affections for certain things. And our affections, um, our, our emotions, the things that we like, the things that we care about, they're influenced by a variety of factors. Right? Uh, one factor that could influence our affections is age. Right? For those of you who are parents who have kids in seeds, I just want you to know that your kids will do just about anything for a piece of chocolate. All right? I mean, I can get them to, they, they will do any kind of action if they're only promised you will have a piece of chocolate. They have an affection for chocolate. That means they will do bizarre, wild, crazy things if I just ask them to. All right? They have an affection for it. Uh, I don't think the same thing would be true for you, parents, if I offered you pieces of chocolate. I doubt you would do the kind of things that your kids are willing to do. Uh, your affections just aren't moved as much by that piece of chocolate. Right? So age has an, uh, has an effect on what we care about, what we think about, and what's important to us. Um, there, is, there is a time in everyone's life 
um, whether they be a guy or a girl, um, that their age begins to influence their affections towards the person of the opposite gender. All right? There is a time, there is an age when there begins to be a growing affection that, that girls begin to have for guys. There is an age at which guys suddenly come to the shocking realization that girls exist and they have this affection for them that, that never really existed before. Well, age has influenced their affections. All right? There are lots of factors that influence our affections. Uh, commercials. If you watch TV, commercials are trying to affect your affections. They're trying to have an influence on you. So commercial, commercials are trying to say, man, you should have an affection for lips that look like this or hair that shines like that or a truck that hauls like this, uh, or a beer that makes you feel like that. They're trying to change what you have an affection for. And they want to affect what we care about, and they know that if they can change our affections, they will change our actions. We act on what we care about. And so commercials are never neutral. They're trying to engage your affections to make you do something. We'll put our money where our affections are. We act on our affections, and so for good or evil, Commercial sees on that. That has an effect on us, all right? There are lots of other things that affect what we care about. Music has an affection on what you care about. Music can make you happy. It can influence you to be sad. It can, uh, music has a variety of, of influences on what you care about. Uh, movies have an effect on what you care about. Uh, you can watch a movie that will actually influence you, have an affection uh, for a character that doesn't even exist, uh, which is amazing. Uh, you will care about something that actually isn't real. All right, A movie can do that. It can influence your affections. Um, my wife and I were watching a movie. We don't watch tons of movies, but we were watching a movie. It was supposed to be an innocent uh, innocent rom romantic comedy, and, and so I was doing part of my love, love your wife and uh, give honor to her, so I was watching this with her, and uh, it was supposed to be this nice movie about, uh, it involved cooking, and, and so we thought everything was going to be fine, and in the movie, uh, there is a mom and her daughter, and they're traveling down the road, and they get into a car accident, and the mom is killed, and so we're sitting there, and Kathy's sitting on the love seat, and I'm sitting on the couch, and I look over at her, and as the movie's progressing, and of course, she's being affected by this movie and by the death of this mom. And she looks over at me and she says, why did she have to die? Why, why did this have to happen? Why, why, did he, why did we choose to watch a movie that's going to make me cry? Like, why did we do this? All right? Well, the movie had an effect on her affections. All right? Things influence us. And I think our problem today is that our affections can be influenced either by evil or things that are much less than the word of God, even if it's not outright evil. So sin corrupts our affections. It makes us want things, care about things that we never should. The world diminishes our religious affections. It makes us care about things that we were never designed to care about as seriously as we do. Uh, misinformation misguides our affections, and so we're caring about things that aren't most important. And that's part of the reason we need 1 Peter chapter 1 to inform us today, because it's going to challenge us to let the word affect our affections. That's what we need today. We need the word to affect our affections. So let's consider first, we should love one another. We should have an affection for one another because of the word. If you look down in verse number 22, you'll see the main command in verse number 22, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. That's the main command in this verse. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's amazing how the New Testament is pretty much like a broken record about how Christians should love each other. 
over and over and over again. It happens in Peter. It happens in the rest of the New Testament. We read it in, in our reading in 1 Peter 4. Peter says, love one another. The rest of the New Testament keeps emphasizing love one another. Right? And when, when you hear something repeated over and over and over again in the word, that ought to, the antennas ought to be up. This, this has to be for a reason that we keep getting told this. We keep getting told, as Christian people, love one another. It has to be because we struggle with this, because we need encouraged in this, because this is so crucial to the Christian life that we love one another. And this phrase is interesting because, first of all, that word love is a, is a command. Right? Christian love is something that can be commanded. It's a matter of the will. We're not talking primarily about an emotional state. We're talking about something that Peter can tell his readers, the Holy Spirit can tell us, love one another. He's not saying work yourself up into an emotional frenzy. He's saying there, there, is a, there is a commitment and there is a dedication to that includes emotion, but is a choice of the will that includes sacrifice, that is, that is the, the Christ kind of love that he demonstrated to us that we ought, to, we ought to have for one another. So it says love one another. Notice that it's reciprocal. It's supposed to, it's supposed to go multiple directions in the body of Christ. There isn't supposed to be just one person that's doing all the loving and everyone else gets to receive it. It's love one another. It's supposed to go back and forth. And Peter will even describe what this love for one another is supposed to look like. He says, love one another earnestly. That's his first description of this love. It's earnest. And that word describes something that is, that is sincere and is genuine and that exerts itself. All right. Earnestly it means to exert yourself. This is not a lackadaisical um, do it when you feel like it kind of love. Um, this is more of the idea like a competing athlete who has pushed himself to the max. He is to the he is to the breaking point. He is stretched. He is striving hard. Right. It's also a word that was used to describe like a violin string that is stretched. It's tight. It's it's taunt so that you can play it. Right. That's the idea. Earnestly. It's stretched. It's maximized. All right. Uh, you could say when it comes to love, we're supposed to leave it all out on the field. If you want to use a sports illustration, you leave it all out there when it comes to love. You don't, you don't just go halfway with loving one another. Love one another earnestly, he says. Get it out there. Work hard at this. The, the word earnestly is not so much about the warmth or amount of love, but about the effort and the stability of it. Love one another earnestly is the command. And he goes on to describe more about it. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, from a pure heart. Where does this kind of love come from? Well, this kind of love is not just external. It comes from within. And when it says pure heart, he's saying this is different than a hypocritical kind of love. This is different than a kind of love that seems to say the right thing when we're face to face. But as soon as I'm behind your back, I'm going to treat you very differently. Or I'm going to say something very different about you. This love is pure. It's it's sincere, it's truthful, it's not two-faced, right? It's a pure kind of love. It comes from the heart. And Peter is very concerned about this idea, idea of purity, about sincerity. Um, notice earlier in the verse, having purified your souls for a sincere, that word also is connected to purity, for a sincere love. And then he says, love from a pure heart. He's very concerned about the purity of our love. And we need to be concerned about it as well this morning. The main command, the main affection that Peter says we should have for one another, he says, love. But he's going to give us reasons that, that he's given us this command, all right? 
Let's look at the beginning of verse number 22. I skipped over it, and that's because uh, the main command is love. That's what we need to uh, focus our attention in these verses. The main command is love one another. But he's going to tell us to consider several things. He's going to tell us to consider the gospel's work in you, and then he's going to tell you to consider the gospel word. All right, so let's look at the first motivation for loving one another. It's in the beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter says we're supposed to love having purified your souls. Something already happened. If you're going to have love for one another, something has to have already happened in your heart. And that is that you have purified your souls. There is this purification that has happened in the past that changes how we live today. How, How did we purify our souls? How did that happen? Well, he tells you, having purified your souls, it happened in the past, and now your souls are pure. How did it happen? By your obedience to the truth, your obedience to the truth. When we talk about the purification of your souls, I think this is pointing to the salvation moment, all right? Purification of your souls. It's talking about you have been changed radically on the inside. You went from dirty and unclean to purified, all right? Why does it say that that that's something that we've done through obedience to the truth? Well, the the idea of obedience is actually connected to salvation a lot, uh, even in the New Testament, even in Peter's writings. Uh, in fact, we, we read it in 1 Peter 4 in our reading out loud. Um, verse number 17 in 1 Peter 4, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what would be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I think those are two terms we don't often put together, the gospel and obedience. All right, sometimes we, we, I mean, we think a lot about the gospel and belief. Uh, sometimes... For good or ill, people like to talk a lot about the gospel and choice. But what we see from Peter is a connection between the gospel and obedience. And it's not just Peter who has this emphasis. Uh, Paul repeatedly emphasized that the gospel is something to be obeyed. It demands a response from us. So it begins in Romans chapter 1, verse number 5, and he says this. He's talking about Christ who he received grace and apostleship from. And he says the reason he was given apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, right? You see, obedience and faith, obedience in the gospel, they go together. And Paul continues this theme in Romans. Uh, in verse number, uh, or in chapter 15, verse number 18, Paul says this, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And he goes on to talk about how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. There is an obedience that is expected, But he goes on to say, after he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah goes on to say, Lord, who's believed our report, right? You see, this connection is repeated, obeying and the gospel. And when he gets to the end of Romans, chapter number 16, and his doxology, Paul again repeats this idea, the gospel brings about the obedience of faith. Right? And the reason for that is that the good news, the gospel, it carries with it a command, a command to repent and believe. Uh, the, the gospel is something that, that puts a demand on everyone who hears it. Uh, there, are, there are only two people in the world. There are those who have heard the gospel message and have said, uh, I will submit to this gospel message that, I, that God is holy and that I am a sinner and that Christ is the only way of salvation. And I will, I will obey this gospel message, which means I must call out for salvation. I must depend solely on him. And in faith, I will trust him. All right? And there are those people who refuse to believe the gospel. 
they refuse to obey it because the gospel itself commands them to repent and believe. And they say, I will not. Right? The gospel is something to be obeyed. And so when Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, I think he's talking in salvation terms. This is something that's happened. Your souls have been purified because of the gospel work that has already gone on. The interesting thing about this obedience to the truth is that it has a purpose. If I were to ask you why you were saved, you might give me a variety of responses. Why were you saved? Think about it for a moment. Why were you saved? Some of you might say, I was saved in order to bring God glory. Some of you might say, I was saved to keep me from hell. Some of you might say, I was saved so that I would do good works, which God prepared for me. I think there might be a variety of answers, but perhaps surprisingly, Peter says that one reason our souls were purified is so that we would have genuine love for other Christians. You notice what he says? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This is one of Christ's purposes in salvation so that we would have sincere brotherly love. That's one of the goals. That's one of the aims of salvation is so that we will have love for one another. The goal of the purification is love for the brothers. And that's because salvation is not solely about about us as individuals. It's about being placed into a family and a community. And purification is intended to lead to a mutual kind of love. That's where it's supposed to go. And so Peter Peter's pointing our attention to the gospel work that has already happened. And he says, you should love one another because this was Christ's intent in your purification. Uh, he saved you so that you would love one another sincerely. And so now I'm going to command you to do it. You see the connection? If God wants you to do this, then I'm going to command you, get, get on with it. You were saved for this reason. So because of the gospel work, now show love to one another. But he moves on beyond just remember the gospel work. And he draws our attention to the gospel word. All right. So consider the gospel's work beginning in verse 22. But we're going to see in, in the rest of 22 all the way down through the end of the chapter is to consider the gospel's word. So again, the command love one another. But then he moves on in verse 23 and listen to what he says. Love one another since you have been born again through the word of God. All right. I took some things out of that, but that's the main thought. Love one another since you were born again through the word. He's drawing our attention to the word that we heard as a reason that we should love one another. Let's look at some of these some of these details. Love one another since you have been born again. Again, this is something that has already happened. Uh, Peter uses a word for born again uh, that only Peter uses. We see the concept of born again other places in the New Testament, but only Peter uses this word for born again. He's drawing our attention to something that has already happened, that has given new life. So the idea of loving is sandwiched by the ideas of being purified and being born again. And those two things are, are synonymous. They're the same. Purification of your souls and being born again, those, those are the exact same things. And that has happened by the work of the gospel. And so the kind of love that Peter is saying we should have for one another can only happen for people who are born again. This is only a Christian kind of love. He's going to go on to describe the word that brought us this salvation. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says, you're, you're being born again. How, how you got new life, how you got new birth. It was through the word. That's how it happened. 
and he's going to inform what that word is and what it's like. And he starts out by saying that this word is imperishable. It is not something that's going to die off or, or fade. This is something that lasts. So unlike a, a natural or physical kind of seed, uh, this kind of seed will last. The quality of the word is totally different than anything earthly. So it's not a perishable seed. It's not something that's going to fade. It's something that, that will last forever. Right? In earthly terms, even if we're talking about um, normal seeds for crops, seeds die in order to produce new life. And eventually, the new life that's created will also die. Right? All plants eventually die. Um, and, and Peter says, this, this seed is different than that. This is not something that's coming from death, and it's not something that's going to end in death. This is something that is imperishable. And what is this imperishable word? He said, it is the living and abiding word of God. The word that lives on, the word that is itself life. Right? He's, I mean, this is an amazing thought. The word is alive. It's got life in it. It has the ability to give you life. In fact, it made you born again. It, it birthed you. So he says, love one another because you have a living word that, that birthed you, that brought you to life. This is why we should love one another. And to make his point, Peter is going to turn to the Old Testament. All right? I, I couldn't preach a message without at least talking about the Old Testament. And so we're at a passage where Peter is going to quote Isaiah 40. And there's a little bit of an irony here because Peter is going to quote the word of God to prove the word of God. All right. See where Peter puts his authority. All right. You want to know that the word of God is enduring and living? Well, then I'll quote the Bible to you. It's the best source for teaching us about itself. Peter's just going to practice what he's preaching, which is we have to depend on divine words that are better than just man's. It's an, it's an amazing thing where you have somebody under inspiration quoting the word in order to prove the word. What he says from Isaiah 40 is this. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right? couple couple things about this verse in Isaiah. Uh, one... Notice how different this view of man is from what we might want to think of ourselves or what the world's perspective of man is, all right? This verse is not the one you go to to extol the greatness of man and talk about all of our wonderful achievements and, and how fabulous we are. This verse says, all flesh, all humanity is like grass, all right? Do you want to know what we're like? We're like grass, all right? This is, this is not heading in an encouraging direction. It says, all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of grass, you want to know what the glory of man, man at its apex, I mean, it don't matter what civilization you want to talk about, man at its greatness, uh, you want to talk about pyramids and sphinxes and modern medicine and whatever it is that you want to say is the glory of man, you want to talk about that? Uh, the Bible says that that's just as glorious as the flower of grass. It's just as lasting because he says the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Man's glory, it's just as passing as the grass we see. It's just as passing as a flower that pops up and then heat comes and doesn't have enough water or whatever else and it falls off. That word falls, it just falls off. That's what man's glory is like. It's temporary, it's fading. It's, it's here today, gone tomorrow. That's what man's greatness is like. There are some people that had to learn this lesson very much the hard way. So Daniel chapter 4 would tell us about a certain king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. And one night in a fit of royal pride, he looked out on all of his hanging gardens and everything else. And he said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. 
And you know what Nebuchadnezzar learned about the glory of his majesty? I mean, he got humbled. He got chew the grass humbled. He got your nails grow out long like claws humbled. Your hair just grows and grows like feathers. He got turned out to pasture humbled. All right? His glory, he quickly found out, was nothing in comparison to God. All right? He learned the hard way. His glory is just like the flower of grass. It can be gone like that. He's not the only king who learned the hard way. Uh, there was another one named Herod in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 12. And, uh, and this Herod put on his royal robes and he took a seat on his throne and he delivered an oration. And the people responded to him with shouts of praise and, and the people were shouting, his is the voice of a God and not of man. And you know what happened to this king who was so impressed with his own glory? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. All right, it's a, it's a bit of a vivid, a little bit of a shocking story about a king who's in the middle of a speech and God strikes him down with whatever happened to worms and his intestines and everything else. Uh, and he's struck down because he's very impressed with his glory. And, and he did not appreciate what this verse tells us about man. Our glory is passing, right? And there's a reason we have to be committed to this understanding about man. Because do you notice what the contrast is? I mean, first we have to believe what the Bible says about us. Our glory is passing. Flesh is like grass. Because there's going to be a contrast. Notice Isaiah's contrast in verse 25. The contrast to man who is but a vapor, who's here today and gone tomorrow, and his glory doesn't last. In contrast to that, the word of the Lord remains forever. Right? The word of the Lord remains forever. There is something permanent about this word that is, makes it very different than you and I. And our greatness cannot be compared to this because this greatness won't die. It lasts. It lives. And this is the word that birthed us, that gave us life. Therefore, love one another. All right? Here's, here's the connection. All right? Here, here's the point. Peter's been making a theological point. The theological point is you've been born again, and the word that saved you is enduring. All right. That's his theological point. The application is then our love should also be enduring. Right. You see the logic that that Peter's doing. Why is why does Peter spend all this time talking about the enduring word? What's the connection to love one another? I mean, have you wondered that? Like, David, the, the main point was love one another. Now you're talking about the enduring word. What's what's the connection? Well, the connection is that the gospel informs how we live and the gospel came to us through a word that endures. And that informs how we should look at one another, right? Peter's argument is more than just love one another because you're born again. That would be true enough. I mean, because we've been given new life, we can love one another. We have that ability now that we never would have known before. But his argument is more than that. It's not just love one another because you have new life, but because new life came a certain way. It came through a word that lasts. And so our love should also be earnest and sincere and pure because it reflects what we understand about the gospel word. So Peter says, if you will consider the gospel and particularly how it came to you, that will change how you act. He's using gospel logic. Remarkable thing is Peter's conclusion of verse number 25, because this will this continues to highlight Peter's high view of the word of God. Look what he says in verse 25. He tells his readers This word is the good news that was preached to you. All right. Why is this? Why is that so remarkable? Well, 
because he just quoted Isaiah, and it, who said, the word of the Lord endures forever. And now Peter is going to identify what that word is. The word of Isaiah is the good news that was preached to you. Peter had a view of the Old Testament. He had a view of Isaiah that said, these books point us to the gospel. A lot of times, I think we can falsely separate Old Testament and New Testament, where New Testament is about the gospel. Old Testament is about, I don't know, something else besides the gospel. Peter says, the good news that was preached to you, that's the word that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah chapter number 40. And we ought to totally expect this. In fact, this ought not be a surprise or a shock to our, to our understanding of the Bible. This is no different than how Jesus treated the Bible, right? On the Emmaus Road, he meets these followers. And where does he begin in order to preach himself to the followers on the Emmaus Road? It says, beginning at Moses, he preached himself. The gospel is not just reduced to a corner of the New Testament. The, the Bible that we hold is good news. It's a word from the Lord that is a message of hope. And that begins in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. All right? Jesus is not the only one. Neither is Peter who had this view of the Old Testament. So you've got Philip and he is taken by the spirit to meet an Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch is sitting in a chariot. And do you know who, I, who the eunuch is reading? He's reading Isaiah because I just gave it away. But you probably knew that already. He's reading Isaiah. Um, it just so happens that Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. In fact, Isaiah's name shows up more than 20 times in the New Testament, more than anybody else. But he's reading from Isaiah and he asks Philip, who's this guy talking about himself or someone else? And when Philip gets up in the chariot to tell him who Isaiah is talking about, what does he do? He proclaims to him Jesus and the way of salvation. All right. Our Bibles are the story of Christ redeeming work. This is a living and abiding word. Peter says this word, the word that endures, it's the good news. It's the gospel that was preached to you, that was declared to you. This word came to us and it came to us through declaration. All right. It's verbalized. It's announced. Don't think of preaching just as in what I'm doing right now. Preaching as in someone declared this. Someone said this is true. This gospel message is is true. And this gospel message, this word informs us to love one another because we have a word that lasts. We should have love that lasts. We should pause here just briefly for just a little bit of application. Uh, for starters, I am, I am encouraged by how much obedience to this verse is happening in our church by how many people are loving one another because of the work that the gospel has done in your hearts. And it's happening in visible ways, and it's happening in ways that, that we don't necessarily get to see. We, we get to experience the truth of this as we live in relationships with one another in our church, people loving one another. I mean, have you considered how do people from this many towns, um, from this many ages, from this many backgrounds, how do they get to the point where they love each other, where people are, are making friends with people they never knew before and are actually extending themselves in relationship? What causes that to happen? It happens because of a living word that has changed us, that we're committed is enduring, and so our love endures. 
What, what is it that makes an older woman invite a younger woman into her house to show her how to cook and then talks to her about what it means to love her husband and be a good keeper at home? Right? It takes love. What makes men agree to spend a day every week reading the word and then inviting accountability into their lives because they know it'll be helpful? What, what drives that? What, what drives these kind of relationships? Well, that's because there is an affection for one another and that affection is grounded in the word or it ought to be. And what I think we need this morning is for Peter's reminder. Uh, this is a reminder to us of what is true. Even, even how we've loved one another, and I know it's happening, and I, and I know it's spreading, and it's a reality in our church. But, but Peter thought his readers needed this reminder, and I think, I think we need it as well. Because without the word, our affections will not be drawn to loving one another. A low view of the word ruins our ability to love. What I'm saying is if you subtract the word out of our relationships, you've actually taken away the thing that gives us the ability to love one another. And that's a very different perspective than what might be popular out there, where loving one another is somehow something that's divorced from doctrine, it's divorced from truth, and it's all about how we act. So the most loving thing to do would be minimize your doctrinal differences and um, settle for social actions. And what, this, what these verses inform us is if we want to love one another, if we want to have affections for one another, then the word is the best argument, it is the best motivation, it is the best source for how we're going to love one another. You see that? It is the gospel and in the gospel word that drives our love for one another. So the better we do going back to the gospel, the better we do understanding our, our bibliology or what we understand about the Bible, the better we understand the Bible, the, the, the more motivation we have for loving one another. Okay, that's Peter's connection. He, he's saying, I have this view of the word. It's living and enduring and abiding. And the Old Testament proves it. And it's the gospel word. And that's why you should love one another earnestly. So that needs to be our perspective as well. Do you want to grow in your ability to love one another? Well, then what we need to consider is the gospel work that's already been done in our hearts. And then we need to consider the gospel word. The better we understand the word, the more we are driven to love for one another. Um, this is the gospel logic that Peter is using on us. Uh, without the word, uh, we, we basically, our ability to love one another, it's, it's cut out from underneath us. Our, our legs are gone uh, without the word driving our love for one another. Uh, I happen to be a person who uh, in, enjoys football, particularly I enjoy college football. And um, it seems like college athletes just keep getting bigger and bigger. And uh, running backs today just amaze me. I mean, they're just these giants of people that are incredibly fast, right? So, Picture, if you will, a running back, and he's this giant of a guy, and uh, he's got the ball, and he sprints through the line, and you're thinking, nothing's going to stop this guy. He's huge, he's powerful, he's big, and he gets through the line, and this relatively small little cornerback comes, and he, he chops him down around his knees or somewhere below his waist, and you see this great big guy, his feet go out from under him, and boom, he's done. He's on his back, all right? That's a picture for what happens if we say we're committed to love. We think love's pretty powerful. We think it's pretty strong. And it's just going to go on its own. We're just going to turn it loose. And, and if that love doesn't have, doesn't have the reliability of the word underneath it, it's just like taking your legs out from underneath you. It doesn't matter how great you think love is or how powerful you think it is. If it doesn't have the stability of the word, it's not going anywhere. All right? It's, it's, it's done before it even gets rolling. We need the word to inform our love. The word is what drives our affections for one another. And this is Peter's point for us today. 
But his point is not just about our love for one another. He also says that we should long for the word because of its power. Let's move on into chapter 2. Um, perhaps a little bit of an unfortunate chapter break, but he's drawn our attention to the word. He's told us, consider what's true about the word that should inform how we love one another. And now he's going to tell us to long for the pure spiritual milk. Right? The word is going to drive our affections because we love one another because of the word and we long for the word because of its power. He says in verse number, in verse number one of chapter two, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The main command in, in these verses is long for the pure spiritual milk. You might, you might ask, your sermon only has two points, love one another and uh, long for the, for, the, for the milk. But I see a command in verse number one. Everybody see that in verse number one? You say, if you're really following this passage, that looks to me like there's three verbs and you should have three points in your sermon. Well, actually that word, put away all malice and all deceit, that's actually not a standalone verb. It's not a verb at all. So it's a little bit unfortunate how it's been translated. When it says so, put away, he's drawing our attention back to the point he had originally made, love one another. He said love one another, and then he went on, on kind of this diatribe about the word that informs our love for one another. But he wants to get our attention. He wants to resume his thought, and so he uses the word so. So because what I said was true, so you should be putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are all things that are never going to work in a loving relationship. All right? We are not going to be able to love one another if we have malice. All right? if, we have, if we have animosity toward one another. If there is deceit. If we're two-faced toward one another, uh, there's no way we're loving one another. Hypocrisy, the idea of the, of the two-faced, the, the, the person in the Greek theater who would hold a mask up and he'd have a happy mask and then a sad mask, but his face was always hidden, that's the hypocrite. All right? That is not an environment where we actually love one another when we're two-faced uh, with one another. So he says we've got to put that all away. We've got to, like, like dirty clothes, get rid of it, strip it off, put away. So all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, all envy, Right? We will not be a church full of people who love one another if we're marked by envy for one another. Uh, I want what that person has. I, I want their gifts. I want their life. I want their resources. I, whatever it is that makes you envious, uh, we will not love one another unless we put these things away, as well as all slander. All right? Love does not exist in a, in a place where people are saying malicious things about one another um, and, and they are insulting each other's character. This is not a place where love exists. And so Peter says, you're going to have to be putting all of these things away this is directly connected to loving one another, but it's a transition into longing for the word because these things don't work in a loving relationship, but these things also hinder what he's about to tell us in verse number two, which is long for the pure spiritual milk. So verse one is actually a transition verse and it's connecting loving one another and it's telling us we've got to put certain things away. We've got to get rid of these if we're going to love one another and we need to put these things away if we're actually going to long for the pure spiritual milk. So the main command Long for the word. I, I love Peter's illustration, like newborn infants long for the word. Uh, that's an illustration that I think anybody can relate to. Anybody can, can get the idea of a newborn infant that wants milk. All right. Uh, if if uh, you don't have that picture, then let me just tell you, there are more than enough sleep deprived parents uh, in this congregation who will be able to explain to you that when children want milk, they want milk. All right. Uh, it doesn't matter what time of the day or night it is. Uh, it doesn't matter what else is going on. You typically don't tell a baby, hey, just just hang on. And you just sit down and reason with it. Listen, baby, 
Uh, you just had milk about two hours and 15 minutes ago. Uh, you'll, you'll have milk in another 45 minutes, so just chill. No need to scream. No need to fuss. Just hang on. All right? Babies crave milk. It's what they want. I, I got to have it. And most of the time, it's I got to have it now. Uh, and I'm going to let you know through the one means available to me, which is screaming my head off, that I want it. All right? They long for milk. We can relate to this illustration. But he says, Peter says, this is what our longing should be for the word. Just like a newborn infant long for pure spiritual milk. So like a baby wants its mother's milk, Christian people long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, the point of comparison with saying newborn infants is not to say that this is immature or to point out their immaturity. Right? There are other passages in the Bible um, where the illustration is milk versus meat, and the idea is to show that, that someone is immature. So, for instance, in Hebrews 5, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, we have a lot, a lot of things to say, and it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. All right, some people try to compare these two passages and say, see, this wanting the milk, this is for the immature. This is for the baby, and we need to get past this. Right? I don't think that's doing justice to what Peter is actually saying because Peter isn't trying to compare wanting milk versus the ability to eat a steak. All right? the, the illustration, like a newborn baby, is not because he's saying we're all immature. It's because he's saying with this level of intensity and desire, that's how we crave for the word. And that intensity and desire is not just for new Christians. It's not for baby Christians. This is for everyone. Right? So, so let his illustration stand in context uh, don't bring in the meaning of milk versus meat in Hebrews or even in Corinthians because Peter isn't making a contrast between milk and meat. He's saying, be like a newborn baby who desperately wants milk. And this is a this is a information, this is an encouragement to all of us. There's no way that every Gentile Christian that Peter was writing to was a baby Christian. He was writing to people who had, who had been saved, who were born again, who... Um, who were, in some cases, very far down in their Christian road, and yet what they needed to know was long for the pure spiritual milk in a way, in a way just like babies would, right? So there's a reason that we should long for the pure spiritual milk, and he's going to give that to us. What does this pure spiritual milk do? He says, long for this milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. By this milk you will grow up to salvation, is salvation a process? Salvation a process. Because he says that through this milk, you're going to grow up into salvation. Can we have salvation now or not? Well, the answer is yes and no. All right? The answer is the New Testament tells us that you are saved and that you will be saved. You are sanctified and you will be sanctified. In fact, Peter has already said that to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5. He talks about, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? There is a future aspect to our salvation that we don't experience right now. Down in verse number 9, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So reality is that you, you both are saved right now, and there is still there is still something that remains for your salvation. We have not experienced the fullness of our salvation yet. And whether you want to call this the gap trap or the process of sanctification, um, we, we are not fully saved 
as in our bodies are free from sin and we have glorified bodies and we always do the right thing. All right. We haven't experienced the fullness of our salvation. We're still growing. And Peter says you should long for this pure spiritual milk because that's what you need in order to grow up to salvation. While we're maturing, while, while we are while we are growing, while we're becoming more and more like Christ, it's the word that's going to accomplish that. So the work that the word of God does makes us grow up to salvation, a salvation that we both currently experience but haven't fully known yet. It's interesting that this makes spiritual growth not a direct act of the human will, right? He says it's the milk, it's the word that is going to accomplish this. So just like our salvation began, faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, so growth happens through the word's power, all right? We, don't, we can't sit around and make ourselves physically grow, and we don't sit around and somehow, on our own power, our own volition, make ourselves grow spiritually. It's the word that we need. There is a, there is a means to you growing spiritually. There's something that God has given you so that you will grow. And it's not your self-effort, and it's not your self-improvement. He's given us the word. The word is what gives us the power to grow. And so that's a reason that we should long for it. He gives us another reason in verse number three. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up in the salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We should consider the word, what it has already done. And this makes us long for more word. Because what has the word already done for us? It has let us taste the goodness of Christ. He says, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. He's not meaning to disparage them and say, you know, I'm calling doubt on your salvation. He's assuming it is true that they have already tasted the word. The way he writes it, uh, he is saying, if indeed you have tasted, and I assume you have, then a natural response, if you have already tasted that the Lord is good, then a natural response is to long for the pure spiritual milk. Peter is actually referencing Psalm 34, verse number eight. He's going to quote directly from it in chapter number three. And so it seems like Peter was meditating on Psalm 34. It was affecting his thinking. And so he actually um, references, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, it comes from Psalm 34. And this taste, it's amazing how Peter is drawing all these things together, being born again, like newborn babies, milk and tasting. And he's weaving all of these things together. And he's saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, that's an action that had already happened. So he's saying it. This is something that's already happened to you. You have tasted that the Lord is good. It's a one-time kind of word, right? And what Peter's saying, he's not, he's not recommending that, that these people try Jesus, like try him on, give him a try, and if it tastes good, then go with it. All right, but if you don't like it, then go back and, and try something new, right? He's, he's not basing their spiritual growth on did, did, you have a, did you have a nice experience in church or did, did, you, did you have a good experience in the word? Um, there was a church marquee sign, um, not very, not very far away from where we are currently sitting. Um, that for a while uh, read this: "Try Jesus. If you don't like him, Satan will be happy to have you back." All right. This is not what Peter is saying. He's not saying uh, give Jesus a taste test. All right. He's saying if you have experienced the goodness of the Lord, then of course you long for the pure spiritual milk. That's natural. That's perfectly expected. Longing for the word comes when we have experienced Christ's goodness in salvation. So a Christian who doesn't long for the word is as unnatural as a baby who doesn't long for its mother's milk. All right. If you have tasted of the Lord's goodness, 
and of course you will long for the word. So consider what's already happened in your heart as motivation for longing for the word now. Christian growth is not a call to a mere duty. It's not a call to an academic pursuit. It springs from experiencing the goodness of Christ. All right, you see the connection? You've experienced the goodness of Christ, and so you long for the word. This is a relational connection, not an academic studied one. It's you have, you have personally, experientially known the goodness of Christ. Notice he says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right? This points to Peter's high view of Christ because he's quoting a psalm, and in the psalm, it's Yahweh. But Peter specifically uses a word that points to Jesus Christ, Lord Christ. He's already done that earlier um, when he says in verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In Isaiah, it's Yahweh. For Peter, he quotes it as Lord, as master. All right. Tasting the goodness of Christ is is the fullness of what the writer was writing in Psalm 34. If we have tasted of the goodness of Christ through the word, then, of course, we want more. Why do you long for the word today? What is it that's driving your heart to long for the word? What what drives us to spend time in the word throughout the week? If the answer is, because if I don't read a chapter today, I'm going to feel guilty for the rest of the day, we have way misunderstood what should be motivating us and driving us. That is a way lesser thinking process than the gospel one that says, I have experienced the goodness of Christ. And so, of course, I long for the word today. Of course, I'm excited it's Sunday. Of course, I'm glad I'm going to open the word. Of course, I'm glad you're talking to me about the word because I have I have tasted. I have known the goodness of Christ through the word and I want more. We have tasted of the goodness of Christ and salvation. And so now let's long for the word that comes from him. Because you see, the word affects our affections. It makes us care about things that we wouldn't otherwise. It means we love one another. We love the people sitting in this room and those who are missing from us today because the word has changed how we think. It's an abiding word, and so it affects us. We have a longing for the pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word. We long for that because of what it does to us and in us and because of what we have already experienced of the goodness of Christ. These are reasons for us to view the word with love, and respect, and study, and desire, and appreciation, because the word is affecting what we care about. Now, I know the word is affecting what you care about, and yet, again, we need to come back to the reminder that Peter has for us. And so, I'd like to conclude with a few so what's. A few so what's. First of all, I think it's entirely appropriate that each of us examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Genuine salvation is something that can be tested. And Peter is basing his arguments about loving one another and longing for the word. He is assuming that, that you have experienced salvation, and so of course you'll love one another, and of course you'll long for the word. What this ought to do for us, though, is make us, make, it, make us ask ourselves, do I have love for others? Is that something that's a reality in my life? Do I have a longing for the word? I'm not saying that we always love one another perfectly. I'm not saying that we're not growing in our love for one another. I'm not saying that we always long for the word the same as maybe we did last month or we will next month. But does it exist? Does love for other people and longing for the word, does it exist in my heart? 
Because if it doesn't, Peter's assumption is, then you haven't actually tasted the goodness of Christ. You haven't actually experienced new life. We can examine ourselves in the sincerity of our salvation by asking ourselves, do we love one another and do we long for the word? And so that's a place to start. And so I'd ask you, every one of you, consider, are these marks of salvation in my life? Because if they're missing, we have a major, major problem. Are you willing to consider this morning, are you willing to consider if your lack of love for other believers and your lack of desire for the word actually means that you haven't embraced the gospel? Are you willing to consider that? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it means that you haven't been meditating on the word. Maybe it means you haven't been thinking about the cross. Maybe, maybe it, it means you have a misinformed view of scripture. But can, will you at least consider that it might mean that you haven't embraced the gospel? Are, are you willing today to see failure to love and lack of desire for the word as a failure to live the gospel we profess? Is it a big deal to you if you if you right now are sitting here going, there are ways that I have not shown love for others and I haven't had longing for the word? Are you willing to consider that this strikes at the heart of our gospel profession? The gospel ought not have a slight and light grip on our lives. It ought to be radically informing our affections. It ought to be changing what we care about. Do you see a genuine love and affection for others here at Grace Church? Do, do you see that working out in your life? Do you long for the word in private reading, in public preaching, in repeated meditation? Do you have this, this drive for the word? We need to ask ourselves if we do and how it's showing up. Believers, are you encouraged, are you motivated this morning to see the love that you do have? So you're sitting here going, yes, I see. Love is connected to being born again in my view of the word. And I see ways that I do love others. I see ways that God has worked this in my heart and I have an affection for others and I have affection for the word. And do you see that as encouragement this morning? Uh, as, as encouragement from, from Peter and from our Christ himself that you have experienced the goodness of him. You've experienced the goodness of Christ because this is true in your life. Do you, do you point to growth in these areas? Not that you're instantly mature or you're perfect, but do you point to growth in these areas as a reason for praise and thanks? I mean, are, are you encouraged this morning to say, I, thanks be to God that that I, I am growing in my love for others and, and I am seeing this happen in my life and and I want the word more and more. And that's a reason to give thanks to God because he's doing that work in your heart. Do you do you look for love in others and longing for the word in others and use that as the basis of you encouraging them? I mean, are you looking at other people in Grace Church and going, man, I just want to come alongside you and tell you I I have been so blessed by seeing how you love so-and-so with, with, what you, with your action or with the words that you gave them. And that encouraged me because love for others is a mark of the gospel change in your heart. You love the word and so you love others. And I'm encouraged by you. Are you doing that with other Christians here? Are you doing the same thing with the word? And you see someone who's hungering for the word and they want to talk with you with the word. And, and you go, man, I, that is a blessing to my heart. Because love for the word means you have an informed perspective of the word. And it means that Christ has changed your affections. We ought to be encouraging one another with this kind of passage. There's one other specific application I want to talk with you about. We typically provide general application and things for you to consider. I want to talk about one specific application that's been on my heart and it's been on my mind. And uh, we're about to do something about it when it comes to our whole church. And that's the idea of scripture memory. All right. Scripture memory. Um, there isn't a verse in the Bible that says, 
thou shalt memorize X number of, of verses, and this is how you should do it, all right? Uh, you're not going to find it. But I think a passage like this points us to um, what should drive us to, to doing Scripture memory or to caring about it. Uh, because there is a word that is living and abiding, and it's that word that gives life, not our suggestions and not our ideas. And so there is... There is a value in having scripture in your mind so that when you're talking with people, you don't just say, well, uh, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, The Bible says that there's good news for you, but that you can actually repeat the words that God has given us. And you do that through scripture memory, through having it in your mind. It's great if you have your Bible on you, but what if you don't? Um, and, and this is a powerful word. So the idea that the word is powerful informs us about scripture memory. The, the idea that we should long for, for the word, I think, informs us when it comes to scripture memory. Because what scripture memory basically is, is it's, me, it's forcing us to meditate on scripture. Because you're, uh, if you're anything like me, you don't just read a verse and you've got it. All right? You're going to have to repeat it to yourself. In fact, that's one of the challenges of scripture memory, right? It doesn't just happen automatically. It takes time. So you're like, yeah, that worked really good when I was a kid in Iwana, but do you realize that I've been out of school for, you know, 15 years now, and I don't even want to try to memorize things. It's hard. But what we're doing when we're memorizing is that we're repeating to ourselves over and over and over again the truth, right? And just that process alone is worth the effort of Scripture memory because we're repeating the word again and again and again. And if we have a longing for this word, then that becomes a delight and a joy and, and not a duty, not a drudgery, but an actual delight that I will meditate on this passage over and over again throughout this day, throughout this week, throughout this month. Okay, I think scripture memory is a um, can be a missing component and it's a vital component of us loving one another and us loving the word. Because the best way, I think, to do scripture memory is to have other people help you. Now, I know that some of you are doing scripture memory on your own. Uh, some of you are very, you're self-motivated or you're in a season of life right now where, where you're doing it. But I think the best way to do scripture memory is together. And so starting, not next week, but starting in November, we're actually going to start a church-wide scripture memory approach where it'll be in the bulletin. We'll probably, we'll quote things together on Sundays. Uh, if you're in a grace group, it'll be repeated in grace groups. Um, we're going to use a scripture memory program that uh, comes from John Piper and his church in Bethlehem Baptist, where they have done the scripture memory program. We'll be working through verses that um, that they have already selected. Um, but regardless of the how all the hows are going to work out, and I'm still very interested in talking with you. Um, some of you have already talked with me about scripture memory, how you're doing it, how you're not doing it. Um, regardless of what exact verses we're going to do and how all it pans out, um, I think this is another way that we show that we are dedicated to the word. I think it needs to happen, and I think the best place for it to happen is in a group where we love one another and we encourage one another to do this. All right, so know that that's coming. Know that I think that's a valid application of if we long for the word, then it changes what, what, what we care about, and we care about this word. So instead of caring most about memorizing baseball stats and football scores and I don't know, whatever else. I don't, what do girls like focus on thinking about all day? I don't know. But uh, our affections are drawn to the word. And so that, that should affect what we think about and what we meditate on. Okay. This is the message from Peter. Uh, love one another because of the word and long for the word because of the power that it has.